0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have casual, long-format conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Um, For this episode, I was uh, really happy to have Professor Ed Hawkins on the podcast. He's a professor of climate science over at the University of Reading in the Department of Meteorology. He's also uh, really active online, both in terms of his Twitter account at Ed Hawkins. He's very often publishing you know relevant climate information there and uh, really interesting climate graphics and visuals and animations. So uh, it's a he maintains a nice account. It's a good one to follow. Uh, Ed's been involved with a lot of different uh, science projects, and we talk about some of those in this episode. So let's get into it quickly. I don't want to spend too much time here at the front, uh, babbling on and on. Uh, so yeah, I guess without any other, there's nothing, no announcements I need to make. There's nothing, uh, that I need to mention. We're still rolling along. Looks like we're, uh, in terms of the podcast, we've been able to maintain a, you know, roughly two week schedule, which is fine. So I'll do what I can to keep that on. So you should expect, uh, for the near future anyway, about every two weeks, you know, unless I say, uh, unless I mention otherwise, and I'll try to let you know if that does change into the future um yeah so like i said at ed underscore hawkins um on twitter and you can look him up on his department of meteorology webpage at the university of reading and uh yeah let's just go ahead and jump right in thanks for joining us welcome to it if this is the first one that you've uh, downloaded and are listening to here we go ed hawkins
1: But, uh, surrounded by atmospheric
0: scientists. Yeah. Like. Which was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I kind of liked it. Um, I kind of liked that atmosphere because I felt like I was getting, you know, by osmosis mm-hmm. a lot of the, um, yeah. you know, atmospheric yeah. concepts and stuff. And that wasn't my research area, right? So I didn't, that's not like something I, I feel like I know the language. I feel like I know mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. vocabulary. Yes. But I don't necessarily, it's, I don't have papers and stuff. I couldn't necessarily, you know, contribute to that. Um, Yeah, cool. Let's see. Thanks
1: thanks for doing this. Can you just remind me what this is all about? So you run a podcast? Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, so basically the kind of history of it is, you know, a few years ago, um, well, for for a few years, I had this notion to... uh, uh, Well, let me back up and say it this Mm -hmm. way. So, I don't know, back in 2010 or 2011, I just started listening to a lot of these really long format podcasts, you know, while I'm washing dishes or... I don't know uh, walking or just doing something you know kind of mindless mm-hmm. uh, and I just started enjoying them and just started uh you know absorbing them and it's not a hyperbole to say I listened. I've listened to like hundreds of hours of them wow. okay so now my mind is warped and I think this is how humans are supposed to you know, <laughs> interact and talk with each other so now if I have a conversation I've got to like you know record it and mm-hmm. uh because there's just uh that feels natural to me now so i've had the idea for a while to um apply that same kind of format to our field Mm -hmm. because i I got you can have so many nice conversations and interesting conversations with people doing climate science and um even though i put it off for a while my you know family encouraged me and my colleagues whenever i brought it it up to them they kind of gave me some further encouragement and said, yeah, that, that sounds good. Why don't you give it a try? Mm-hmm. So I started it back in uh, in January, just starting locally at Bass there with Dave, sure. Dave Monday, who Dave Monday yes. was here he really for, right. for yeah. a yeah. long time, yeah. And uh, I've done a few since then, and it's been really good. Uh, I've I've been surprised by... I've gotten, you know, some positive feedback from listeners, and people seem to enjoy this kind of really long-format, casual style of conversation. Yeah, um, yeah so that's that's been... Um, that's okay. pretty nice, yeah. So really it's it's I don't I've got some, you know, little notes and things and that's yeah. just to kinda guide my yeah. like if if there's a moment where I want to see like, oh well let's go in this direction or that direction, that's fine. But I don't have like a I'm not trying to get specific Answers mm-hmm. out of you. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to do the soundbite thing, right? I'm not okay. trying to like pull anything. Cause that's right. well, I don't know. That's not good. That's not like a real conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but you bits so, out you know. if, if needed, and not
0: not usually. Okay. Um I mean, if if something comes up and you're like, ah, I don't know, maybe you don't put that in there. That's fine. I yeah. don't mind taking that out. Yeah. But yeah. I leave most of the stuff sure. in there because then it's just like an actual chat. chat. Yeah, yeah, actual okay. conversation. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So, uh, and they, they, there's no minimum or maximum time. You know, mm-hmm. they can go as, as short as we want or as long as we want. I know we have some constraint because there's lunch. Yeah. What, know, at what some time point. does Smurf start? Smurf. I think <laughs> the lunch starts at twelve, right? Twelve. Okay. And then the uh, the actual thing itself, the meeting itself, starts yes. at uh, starts at so one. We've got loads of time then. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah we're good. Oh, 12, 25, 25. Yeah. So thanks for doing this. That's yeah, all right. No, no problem. No, Really glad to be here, and I'm glad to have you on because this is a really good really good opportunity um, i I looked at some of your tweets yesterday. I was really enjoying some of them because one of them you, know, you uh you're pretty active on Twitter right you know you've got uh, a nice presence there and you don't mind kind of putting yourself out there and uh you know the, the one that caught my eye is where you said, you know I mean in order for there's this conspiracy theory right that climate scientists are somehow faking it and somehow fudging the data and this conspiracy theory is really popular in some circles Mm -hmm. it is and uh, (laughs) but what I I love about you know you pointed out how hard that would be like how impossibly just crazy hard that would be for you know thousands of scientists over a couple centuries now to like consistently fake a bunch of measurements and a bunch of data and to like consistently (laughs) because you know all these data sets like you know, the, the physical system has these constraints been to, built into it, you know, like conservation of energy and there's geostrophic considerations and all of these things. And, you know, can you? We, we have a hard, I guess one of the ways I thought about it is like we have a hard enough time dealing with the normal data. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine having like, here's the real data and then somewhere else there's a, there's like a hidden server behind a firewall. Well, here's the, the fake data we're using to fool everyone. But um, I don't know, I like that you're pushing back against that. I like that you're
1: kind of, putting it out there and it um it's also I think reminding people that, you know, although we have all these temperature measurements going back a couple of centuries, and that's our you know, our best data set for understanding what's changed, it isn't the only data set we have. We have, you know, the records of the melting glaciers going back centuries. Yeah. Uh we have satellite photographs of the Arctic melting. Um, we have um, you know, records of butterflies and ice melting in certain locations, you know again going back a very long time, and so the natural world is telling us that the world is warming, even if we didn 't have any temperature measurements, yeah. even if you threw the temperature measurements away completely, <laughs> we would still know that the planet was warming yeah. we 're seeing sea levels rise due to the expanding water um, uh, and the melting ice and so all of these indicators are telling us. That something is changing, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. it's all consistent, Yes. I think
1: um
0: yeah it's, it's all kind of pointing in the same direction, you know o- the uh, ocean heat content's going up, and the um surface temperatures are going going up over long time scales you know over many decades, kind of time scales um that was that was one of the things you know we're here we're gonna do the Smurfs meeting today, and um so you're one of the lead like investigators on I'm Smurfs, one of the right? you know, scientists, yeah. yes, yeah, and I thought that might be fun to talk about, right because. The whole one of, one of the ideas behind SMURFs as a project is looking at that land surface temperature record and trying to understand it, right? Because you've got these periods where the temperature doesn't in the land surface temperatures, which is just like the very upper part of the ocean and the you know the land itself. You've got these periods where the that temperature doesn't change much. It goes up. It might even go down a little bit. But it's kind of distracting, right? Because that time series, that's not necessarily a great measure of much energy is going into the climate system right it's um, you can look at something more like ocean heat content and that's been steadily re- really climbing pretty steadily that's like a nice steady thermometer and that's a way more uh, because of like the ocean has this high heat capacity right it's it's that's a way better thermometer to use to try to understand and to see that oh yeah the, okay the earth system is picking up a lot of extra energy and storing it in places and so Smurfs is trying to figure out something about how different um, parts of the climate system exchange energy with with each other, which can lead to these, like, um, you know, surges and, and hiatuses in the surface temperature where it goes up or
1: it doesn't go up for some period. Um,
0: yeah, so what what's, it, what's your kind of role in that? What have you been up to with okay. the Smurf stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, ideally, we would have measurements over the entire ocean going back centuries, yeah. but, you know, we just don't. So... Um, we have to rely on the records we do have, um, and we have more records obviously at the surface. Yeah, um, and so that surface record is very important to understand all of those ups and downs that you that you mentioned. Um, you know, we see you know in the nineteen twenties um, quite a you know a reasonable sized increase in global temperatures as far as we can tell from our measurements, um, and then after the nineteen forties we see a slight decline in temperatures, and after the nineteen seventies we see a, quite a rapid rise in temperatures. Um, And then potentially there was this slight flattening um, uh, in the more recent period, which has now disappeared with some very large El Nino events. And so understanding all the different reasons for those different ups and downs is, is important for us to understand what is the component due to increasing greenhouse gases and human activity. So we need to try and pick apart the signal, which is the human cause part and the part which is just natural variations due to say small changes in the Sun or volcanic eruptions um, and all these other factors that we have to try and pick apart and so understanding these ups and downs um, is very important and Smurfs is doing a lot of work to try and understand um, those ups and downs um, a lot better yeah I was a little distracted over here because I I've never actually seen a
0: printed out IPCC Working Group 1 book, like the whole thing actually printed out. It's pretty heavy. You know, yeah. yeah oh, can, it's, I, you know, can I feel it? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> what is this like? It's, it's a like, thousand pages. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's like five uh, inches thick or something? Yeah. Uh, oh, glossy pages too. Glossy yes. paper.
1: Yeah. That's the... <laughs> and it's got... 200 uh, and something authors. Yeah. 600 um, odd contributing authors. Um. It's probably one of the most time-intensive books ever written. Yeah, uh, um, if not the most time-intensive book ever written.
0: And I was looking at all these like references. I mean, it must have must be referencing thousands and thousands of papers. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's yeah, tens of thousands, I think. Tens of yeah. thousands <laughs> yeah. of papers. That is crazy. I'm thinking about all the. I mean, you know, we know the time and effort that it takes to like make a single paper, and so that's the integrated effect that book. You know, the IPCC Working Group One, book, it represents. Accumulate cumulative effort. uh, You know, if it's 10,000 papers, then it's, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of hours of people like working on this thing. So it represents like a, I mean, the word synthesis is in the name, and that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be, you know, so you're involved with the writing process for
1: the next one, right? That's yeah. right, yes, I'm going to be a lead author on chapter one yeah. of AR6. Nice, have you started
0: that yet? Or we haven't, uh, like
1: we start in June, start June yeah. uh, with the first lead author meeting, um, and it's a process which is going to run for a few years, um, with, you know, getting 200-odd authors hmm. from all over the world, um, synthesising the knowledge that we have about what's happening to our, our climate.
0: Yeah, I was talking with Mike Meredith about, he's leading this uh, special report, and you know, he was talking about how how iterative it is, and how hard it can be to like you know get even a moderately sized group of people to kind of agree with each other and agree on a certain set of statements and things. So, um, yeah. So I I imagine, but you you probably have been doing stuff like that and stuff like synthesizing, uh, um, you know, before. Or I forget. Were you involved with with
1: that one? Um, I, that? I was a contributing yeah. author last time round, and yes, it was. You know, there were there were elements where different scientists disagreed about specific. You know, points, and, yeah. and and that and that's you know a normal part of the scientific process that we all go through to to get a better understanding. You know, there's obviously things that we can all agree on, um, mm-hmm. and things we can all disagree on, um, and in the middle there's there's in you know, areas where you know there are there are sort of pockets of agreement about you know specific details that that we want to better understand, and so synthesizing that consensus um or the divergence of opinions um is an important part of that process. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's
1: uh um
0: it probably helps that you that you already know a decent number of people. I mean obviously you're working not just with people you already know, but uh, I think sometimes about the whole community aspect mm-hmm. of science and you know how how important that is and the those relationships are really important and you know maintaining
1: those and uh yeah, I is, think we sometimes forget how large the community is. Um, and there's lots of people you know on the list of authors that I know, and there's actually lots i don't know yeah. and it'll be fantastic to meet them uh, and learn about their experiences.
0: I think Twitter has taught me that as well because I, you know I can just go through the list of who to follow, you know there's the recommendations of who to follow and I'm always surprised I'm like another physical oceanographer, another physical oceanographer that I don't know, another physical oceanographer that i don't know, and I know that not that many physical oceanographers are on Twitter. So, like, it's a small percentage of oceanographers are there. And I'm seeing, you know, I don't know, a few, t- tens of them, at least. Even even that's kind of surprising. And uh, it gives me a little bit of a sense of just how big the field is. And it uh, gives me hope that, you know, maybe I can, uh, maybe there are jobs out there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, <laughs> yeah, it's just a
1: great way of meeting people, you know, mm-hmm. virtually. So that, you know, if you bump into them at conference, you'll have instantly have some kind of, connection that you can chat about yeah um uh, twitter thing i met uh, yeah
0: i met rejected banana it's, okay um, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know rejected uh, banana. Kim, kim martini so okay. she's uh, she works at uh well she does a lot of the scientific instruments like oceanographic instruments mm-hmm. and uh that was the first thing i said to her i saw her name and i said oh you're you're rejected banana luckily she knew what it meant and she, obviously because that's sure. her thing
1: you know certainly when i was more early career scientist you know i i I spoke to people who i knew from twitter that probably wouldn't have spoken to me without that connection yeah um more senior people and so that was you know it's very good um experience to have to 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 get to know a wider group
0: yeah what do you think about this there's been this um discussion about how personal versus professional scientists should be on twitter i think it's really interesting because i don't obviously you know uh, i mean I kind of have an instinct for where where I want to be, but I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily something that I could generalize. You know, I don't think I could tell a room full of people, oh, this is how you should be. It feels more like something that you have to kind of figure out for yourself. But there are folks out there who kind of take a hard-line position and say, no, if you're a scientist, your social media platform should be 100% professional and you should never, you know, it, it, it almost feels like you... For those folks, you shouldn't even share an opinion of something. You, know, you should almost only promote your papers and stuff. And for some folks, that might be the right way to do it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Where do you think, personal versus professional? And where do you kind of?
1: Want... Um, I, I certainly lean more towards the professional side. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly. I don't tend to discuss politics. Um, you know, I, I see many other scientists doing that, and that's fine. Um, I, you know, I don't have a problem with it, but I've taken the personal decision not to mix politics and science, where Mm. possible. Um, So I I very, very occasionally talk about personal aspects, but that's very rare. um, And most of what I talk about is science, the communication of science. But having those discussions with people, um, scientists and non-scientists, I think is um, an essential part of the platform. And Mm. you get more out of it um, by having those discussions learning why people agree or disagree with you, um, that, that is a very valuable aspect of, of what goes on. And so I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't think just using it to promote your own papers and not commenting, I, I think, is, is, is missing some of the benefits of, of, the, of, the, of the type of approach that, yeah. uh, to communication that it, that it is.
0: Yeah, because one possible benefit is that now, you know, whether it's other scientists or just members of the, like, public, they can have more direct access to a scientist. We're not like hidden behind. The, we're not not doing the whole ivory tower thing. We're we're trying to get away from the whole ivory tower thing, right? And
1: yeah, I mean, people can you know, ask you know ask scientists questions that they've wondered about, and if you know if they're very genuinely interested and you know interesting questions, then you know I'm very happy to to try and answer those where I can.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you can you've put a little bit of your personality in there. It's not like you're answering. As a robot, you know you're answering as a person and putting your. And that is you know, important. You know, you know, you know we, yeah. we, are, we are
1: people. We you know we have <laughs> opinions and views and character and personality, and so it's important to to appear like a you know as, as a normal person. If you like, that's, the, uh, that's appear that's, like, like that, a normal that's... person. <laughs>
0: we have to do a good a good fake to appear like normal people. <laughs> uh, no, it's all it's all good. Um, I like this. Uh, I've been looking at the Climate Lab book blog uh, a bit. And uh, so, you know, you've got some interesting kind of bits of advice on there and bits of code on there and, uh, you know, things that, that people, is that something, can anybody contribute to that potentially if you can submit something to that? How how does that work? They can,
1: yeah. I, I started several years ago now to try and just be slightly more open about science in progress um, to sort of put up interesting um, thoughts and, and ideas and, and plots and so on. Um, uh, but no, I'm very happy to have contributions from from any climate scientist who wants to discuss their latest research or latest idea, um, wh- whatever it might be on. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a platform for for hopefully discussion of ideas and, yeah. and and so on. So yeah, no, I'm very happy to to have people involved yeah, re- so regularly or just a one off. Yeah, either way. So you're kind of an, an editor of that. You're kind of curating
0: that a little bit, That's and right, cultivating yes. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you, I kind of, I like to ask all of my guests, partly because I'm still trying to learn myself, even though I've been doing it a while, I kind of am still kind of collecting information about how to do this. Because it's a tricky thing, right? Writing papers, like how do you approach writing? Is it something, do you enjoy it? Do you not enjoy it? You know, where do you kind of, what's your,
1: what do you do? (laughs) I I do enjoy writing. Um, I don't get as much time to do it as I would like now, Um, but I think... Writing is is a is an important part of doing the research itself. I think you will, as you're describing a particular figure that you've made, for example, you will prompt questions yeah. in your own mind about the interpretation um, when you're trying to describe it essentially to other people. Um, and so, writing about it, for me anyway, it is part of the process, and it's an evolving process because you will you will see things perhaps that you didn't perhaps see before. Yeah. Or think about it slightly differently when yeah. you're writing about it, um, so that sort of prompts you know a further discussion or further research to to, to nail down a particular aspect. So I yeah. think it's very important for that.
0: It's iterative, right? It you is know, very much
1: iterative, and I, I certainly down. encourage students and postdocs, whatever to to start writing early their their results, and so they prompt those prompt those thoughts.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you write something down, you make a plot, um, you know, and that kind of uh might bring up new ideas, it might force you to kind of revise your thinking about something. I guess the tricky thing then, you know, you you start doing that and potentially there's no end to that process, right? You know, you you always think of new things, the things you should try. So how do you cultivate that sense of, like, okay, this is enough. I I don't have to go back and iterate on this yet again. I need to just
1: stop. (laughs) <laughs> like how do you you get i committed. i find that quite hard actually. Yeah, no yeah. i mean it, there's always more questions to answer <laughs> yeah um and so you know once you have a you know a once you've answered a couple of questions then you go okay well, i can i can finish there at that point and but leave the, the questions open for, for a further study later on down the line.
0: Yeah, it's just an, an instinct thing, isn't it? It's just something that takes time to develop. I and think it does, you know, yeah. There's no, no, and there's
1: no right answer, no magic answer to that, I don't think.
0: Yeah, because we don't exactly, we sort of have deadlines. I mean, we need to produce kind of a certain baseline number of papers per year, but it's not like, I don't know, I... I haven't experienced this myself but you know you get a, a book deal or something and you've got like a deadline your publisher gives you a deadline and you're like I want a chapter by this day but if you don't have that external kind of constraint you got to do it for yourself you have to I guess decide ah, okay yeah I'm going to work to get this paper out by this date so it has to you have to be your own editor <laughs> in that sense I, mean, I, I think, think push yourself It, it is way. slightly
1: unfortunate that there is this pressure from number of papers I don't mm. I don't particularly like that myself yeah. I think it is much better to do one very detailed solid in depth analysis than two shallower um yeah. analysis. I would much further take someone to work with someone who is going to write those in depth papers than than, than, the, than the shallower ones um yeah and uh, you know number of papers is is one metric of of our output as a scientist, but looking at Those papers, I think, is more important about what's actually in them. Um, if we want to sort of understand, um, the, the person who's, who's, you know,
0: writing them, for right. example, it's, it, I guess, it's just such an easy thing to do just count people's papers that, uh, that's the sort of default kind of being counter approach to
1: evaluating somebody. Is like, unfortunately, it is, yeah yes. I think number of papers quality is um, more important than quantity for you know, a lot of the time,
0: yeah, that's that's unfortunate, yeah, and it's uh because uh well it would be fine if you you know imagine a scientist who only wrote like four papers ever but what if they're four amazing papers then that should be fine too that should be permitted you know as well and it takes time for like big ideas to show up and to be cultivated and uh, trimmed and, and so yeah it kind of raises questions about how people are evaluated but i guess that's the We we talked about this with Dave Monday, actually. The tricky thing is, you know, whatever you you do, whatever kind of quantitative system you try to come up with to measure scientists, then everybody shifts their behavior to, like, well, now we're going to do that thing. So if you just start counting people's papers, they're going to write more papers, (laughs) more smaller papers to kind of game that that system. Uh, But uh, there's a, a big demand from management to have like quantitative you know easy to read metrics of what's this index and that score and what's the there's something that kind of for some folks who work in australia i've seen it's kind of terrifying they have your your profile page is like well here's your here are all of your indices we're going to make reduce you to nothing but that and here's like i think that's rather
1: unfortunate see see the bigger picture about you know the rounded scientist that someone is i think is, is far more important
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I I remember seeing one of these pages and it's just kind of, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's it's shocking. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's all I am I'm these numbers. (laughs) Uh, Like, you just put them on your shirt or something. (laughs) Tattoo them on. Tattoo tattoo them on. Here's my H-index tattoo (laughs) on my wrist. (laughs) That's the only. Um, How long have you been in Reading?
1: I've been in Reading for 12, 13 years now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so f- fair old time now. Do you live um, nearby? Kind I, of, yeah, uh, live quite close. Just cycle to to the uni- university every day. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, does it
0: take long? About 20, 20, you know, minutes, 20 minutes yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 Are the cars pretty good at looking out for cyclists here, or because <clears can throat> in Cambridge they kind of do okay, but it's sort of terrifying at the same time. <laughs> Most
1: the vast majority are great. There's sure. one or two who um, I think would prefer that the cyclists weren't on the road. <laughs>
0: When you said one or two, it gave me a mental image of like there's two specific people <laughs> who like drive around Reading looking for like <laughs> discouraging, actively discouraging cyclists. Yeah, it seems seems like a nice. Do you like a, like the size of the town and the university? It seems for for me, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. The university
1: um, is fantastic. We've got a fantastic group of people here, researchers, but more broadly, the the university is on a a very nice, large, open, yeah. green campus. So I cycled past bluebells and yeah. um, daffodils and everything else this morning. I crossed a bridge and, and this lovely lake and um, <laughs> and geese and everything. So it's a very nice atmosphere to to, to walk around in. Um, and so it feels very open, which which I like. Yeah, that's good.
0: I keep occasionally I forget. I keep forgetting and then remembering what it's like to be on a self-contained university campus like this because you know Bass is out by itself, and then Cambridge, if you go to the university, it's kind of just. All, it's it's in the city, but it's not a distinct entity, right? You, you're, you can't point to any location and say, well, that there's Cambridge University. It's yeah. just interspersed throughout the whole city and kind of integrated into it. Um, so, yeah, keep, it's definitely its own little world, you know, like you, you, it is, yeah. you come in and yep. has has a distinct feel to it, and uh, the average age of people is much lower. <laughs> <You look around laughs> it is, like, yes. I've crossed some kind of threshold in recent years where, you know, a few years ago, I could come to a campus like this and in my head still sort of go like, oh, I'm, I could be a student here. I could still fit in here. And now I don't know if it's, if it's age or just kind of accumulated just experience, but I no longer have that feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm walking around going like, oh, I'm not in this anymore. I'm not a student anymore. Something has <laughs> happened to me over time. And uh, now I, um, which is fine. It's okay. That's just, that's the whole evolution of the process. But it's, it's just funny to notice things like that. And I guess thinking about your path you know now uh you're you're you do a lot of kind of um helping other students right and supervising other students, and you know you're kind of in this organizational role that's one of the things that Mike and I talked about is mm-hmm. he he sometimes misses having that time to just work on his own problems and do his own writing and stuff so how have you how have you how have you found that balance you know looking for Um, that right balance between working on your own stuff and helping other folks and and doing the kind of management roles that you have
1: to do. I've I've been very lucky in that I've had a a fellowship from uh, from NERC for for five years, which was fantastic, which meant that I could spend a large chunk of my time doing the research that I wanted to do myself. But at the same time, I've also been involved um, leading a couple of projects and being involved in several other very large projects, supervising students and postdocs. Um, and that necessarily takes up time, which is great. You know, you're talking with, you know, bright young scientists, um, which has been a fantastic experience. It's great, right?
0: Yeah. It is. It's brilliant
1: yeah. to, to, to see, you know, them have excellent ideas um, to just go off and explore them and mm-hmm. develop and mature as, as scientists. It, yeah. It's really, really fantastic to see. That's, the,
0: that's one of the best things, yeah, when you work with a really bright student. Um, cause I haven't had a PhD student, but I've had some awesome summer students and master's students. Mm-hmm and uh you know, you hand them a problem and you have a good science chat with them and wait a couple of days and results show up like yep. plots show up and uh that's still an amazing thing to me and like you said it's really exciting to to feel like oh i'm i'm helping this person like discover a new area of investigation for them and discover a new area of analysis and um yeah it's it's really rewarding
1: I mean that's, that's why we, that's why we enjoy the science right is yeah. to see those um, discoveries and new ideas and um, yeah it's an exciting part of, of what we do
0: yeah but also I mean helping people helping students yes. who are passing through you know we're not just using them as results mills you know no. there's also a nice we're developing you know, developing them
1: as scientists yeah yeah, yeah absolutely
0: yeah. or whatever they choose to go oh, into Of know, course, because yeah. yes. um, some folks you know well lots of folks actually will go in a, in a different direction I've got a, an awesome master student who uh, has a, a job lined up at a big London financial house. After this, he's doing awesome work in our field, and uh, I kind of wish I could convince him to stay. <laughs> but that's fine. He's got to go off and do his his thing. Yep. You now whatever makes sense for him. Um, yeah. I really, I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that aspect of um, helping people and helping students. I kind of miss teaching for that reason too. I, I used to you know, teach like large classes, and you kind of had that daily contact with with students, but once you do uh, since I'm in a research kind of institute now there's not as much of that you know, which is okay it's just a different
1: kind of mode to be in where were you before uh, Reading? Um, so I, I, I had a slightly unusual career path yeah. in that I, I did my PhD in astrophysics oh, yeah. at the University of Nottingham oh cool um, so a completely different topic yeah. studying distant galaxies um, we talk which about is, that too yeah which is fascinating um, really enjoyed it Loved it, still enjoy learning about, you know, that that science. But I felt that I wanted to do something a little bit more down to earth. Um uh, more practical help. and useful. You have to have that joke. You can't yeah. it's mandatory. <laughs> it's mandatory. <laughs> um, uh, and so I I actually went and worked outside academia for a year and didn't enjoy it. Um yeah? uh, mm-hmm. and so I came back um and ended up doing a master's course here in Reading Is to kind here? of convert between being an astrophysicist and being a sort of meteorologist climate scientist okay. um, and I was lucky enough to to meet you know the the scientists that, that work here in Reading um, and was lucky enough to get a postdoc yeah. straight out of that so, master's.
0: So sorry you said the astrophysics thing was a PhD level? PhD didn't? yes. Oh yeah that's right but in the UK you do PhDs pretty early and pretty young, at least relative to like the US system where it's, you know, seven years and you've already done another degree. So there could still be time to, you know, switch paths and to do something and, different. And, and there's what, a surprising
1: know. number of <clears throat> climate scientists um, who've come from other fields. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially astrophysics, um, for some reason that, there seems to be a ready source of um, of scientists coming in which is fantastic and I think they bring new ideas and new approaches we should
0: talk about that because that's uh, where I started too <laughs> okay fantastic <laughs> speaking of that yeah it was just um, for my undergrad and my mm-hmm. masters um, I was working with uh, numerical modelling of dark matter halos of galaxy fantastic gal- galaxy evolution awesome. you know, yeah that was a lot of fun you know we uh, at that time modelling has like moved on since then but at that time we could just do the dark matter because that's most of sure. the most of the galaxy. We yep. didn't even have gas, so we didn't have any matter that you could see in our simulations. <laughs> it was just dark matter, um, and we would you know start it in these cosmological with these cosmological initial conditions. You know the expanding universe, and you make a little um, collection of particles that are dense enough to kind of collapse under their own gravity, and you look at the kind of um, shapes that they end up in. And um, we were uh, I was part of I wasn't. Driving them, I was just an undergrad and master's mm-hmm. student. But we ended up on a couple of neat papers looking at, um, can you deduce the merging history of a galaxy from when okay. you look at it now? Can you make any statements about well, here's the here's its past. Here's the kind mm-hmm. of you know either it had some smooth, either it has merged smoothly with other galaxies or it's had Violet a more collision kind of, yeah, yeah. Of past. Fun. That, was, that was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I enjoyed astrophysics, but I, I guess ultimately it just didn't quite it it didn't quite feel like I'd make I could make a career in it. And I guess part of that was totally subjective. I just subjectively had this feeling of like, well, it felt a bit saturated to me. I didn't see the little niche that I could fit in. I didn't see like a a way I could make a unique contribution. I felt like I would always just kind of be, you know, a few steps behind. Uh, And it's not that I couldn't do the work. It just felt like very crowded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not looking for that sort of prompt. I'm not prompting you for anything in particular. Mm -hmm. I just... Telling you about my experience. Yeah. And I want to... Oh, so what was your experience in astrophysics like? What was your...
1: I, I, no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I was working um, on a very large um, team. We were building a, a new survey of distant galaxies, mapping them, um, called the 2DF Galaxy Redshift Survey, is which that, Cambridge were involved in. And
0: is that the S- Sloan? Is that... It, is it, that was,
1: it, it was at the same time as Sloan. Same time as Sloan. Um, okay. in, but this is a UK-Australia group hmm. um, doing something fairly similar. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, and so it was part of a big team and um, taking all these observations of these distant galaxies and mapping their locations better than we had before. Yeah. Um, and so, you yeah, know, I really, really enjoyed um, that aspect. Um, that was your PhD. That was my yeah. PhD. And yeah. then, I mean, you know, there are so many similarities actually between mm. astrophysics and climate science. You know, they're both observational sciences um, in that, you know, we can't directly do experiments. Yeah. Um, to to learn about um, what goes on, we have to take the observations <clears throat> and and learn yeah. from those observations. Just have to be
0: happy with the foot hands we get. Exactly,
1: rest, you, um, know. <laughs> you know. And if we miss observing a supernova or something, then we can't go back and reobserve it. Yeah, um, you know, it's gone. <laughs> um, and the same with climate. You know, we we can't. You know, we can't go back in time and take all the observations that we would like to have taken back two centuries ago. Um, we yeah. have to deal with the observations that we have, and so that's there's that you can, aspect. You can try to do paleo
0: stuff. You can try to look at you know paleo records, um, but it can be a bit hard, right? The error bars can be big just because you're trying to do a lot of complicated proxy measurements. Yeah. And it was sort of similar with that galaxy collision paper. It's yes. not like you could make a really concrete statement about this has merged three times with two other galaxies. It was it was more of a very broad like uh, violent or not violent kind of history. Mm-hmm you can actually do, you can do pretty good with paleoclimate. I'm not, that's not a negative statement about mm-hmm. paleoclimate. Yep. I just mean it's, it is hard and the error bars get bigger. It's hard and, you know, interpreting,
1: yeah. you know, precisely what the, the proxies mean is, is challenging, but yeah. it's, you know, a very useful and important part of, you know, the science that goes on. Yeah. Um, but it also means, you know, we have to rely on simulations as well. Um, and as you say, the simulations have gradually improved over time in, in astrophysics and in climate science. Yeah. Um and you know, and because they've improved, they've become more useful and learn more details. Um, you know, we know they're not perfect, um, and we have to consistently remember that. But there, you know, there's a lot of these similarities, which I think means that people can move move the, through the fields. I think, yeah, very successfully yeah. because it's a similar mindset of, you know, it's an observational science. Um, we have to rely on fluid dynamics and fluid dynamical simulations yeah. and so on. There's a lot of similarities there.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Thinking about how both kind of climate and astrophysics it's it's neither one of you can't sit down in a lab and isolate your system. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, that's you have to take the information that you can get from observations, you have to supplement it or, you know, deepen it in some way with your simulations and your theoretical understanding. I think it it can be kind of nice, right? Because that sort of problem brings together the kind of observational and theoretical and modeling communities, you know, there's, there's a good overlap and a good kind of coherence there. You know, we all need each other. (laughs) Absolutely. And and the best,
1: and the best climate science and the best astrophysics come from those collaborations and people joining together. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So that's part of why the community element is so important. Like keeping, you know, relationships with scientists going. And, uh, so I, I do want, I want to get back to your kind of history because that's really interesting. So like, um, so you came to Reading to do the Masters, mm-hmm. and then uh, just continued. Basically, you've been here. Did you? Do I've well stayed here ever since. Actually, here? yes. Yeah. Um, wow! It wasn't the original <laughs> plan, but um, yeah. no, it's
1: worked out very well, and I've enjoyed it. That's great.
0: That's really good, like stability, <laughs> to be able to stay. I mean, there, there is, a,
1: you know, slight, the sense from some scientists that you know, we have to move around um, to develop ourselves as scientists. Um, you, know, there, you know, there are some people who, who seem to, you know, who think that that is a compulsory part of what we should be doing. Um, and I do think that's very beneficial. If you go to a different institute, you're immersed in a different environment and you learn a lot. Um, but I don't think it's essential. And I think if um, if you want to stay in where you are and it's one of the best places in the world to do what you want with some of the best people, then you should stay and hmm. work in an area and a place where you're comfortable you've got good relationships um, and you know that you can do amazing science. Um,
0: yeah, uh, And not? so
1: <clears throat> it's, it's not one size fits all, you know, and we, people you know, sometimes seem to suggest that we should, you know, you must do this, this, and this, and this, when actually I think we need to take a broader view. Um, and if people are, are comfortable in a location working with people, then we should try and ensure that that is possible.
0: Yeah. I guess pretty often funding means that people end up having to hop around a lot, especially after your PhD, you know, folks end up often hopping around, you know, chasing one job after the other. And
1: that makes it you very, know. very difficult, I think, for to, especially if you change your field slightly, you have to learn. Um, and, you know, learning is great, but sometimes, you know, you just want to immerse yourself in a particular problem. And that and that can take several years. And we don't necessarily have the, the processes to, to enable that all of the time as much as we might yeah. like.
0: Yeah, I'll be honest. It's kind of like it's having... You know the idea of having to move around a lot, chasing individual jobs—it's a lot of things. It's uh, it's exciting in some ways because you get to go to new places and meet you know, new people and yeah. get involved with different problems. But it's also terrifying because you don't feel mm-hmm. like.
1: <laughs> and some people <laughs> love hopping like, around, you know, you know yeah. they really enjoy moving and exploring and meeting new people, and that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, um, but other people don't want to do that and we need to try and make sure that the environment is there for, for both <laughs> groups to thrive
0: yeah i think i have really enjoyed it in the past mm-hmm. and now i'm getting a little tired <laughs> you want to stay I'm where I'm you tired. are now yeah. now i'm like okay <laughs> and my you know my son's in school and stuff and i'm kind of like okay i don't <laughs> i don't want to hop around yeah. anymore if i can help it um i it's mean it's a lot of know, effort to move you know, is it? It, it is yeah i'm not saying i wouldn't move if, ne- if needed i mean that's obviously something that I'd, I'd consider if i needed to but it's it yeah I don't know it gets tiring after a while and you uh, get uh, tired of kind of saying bye to places that you've gotten used to and groups of friends groups of friends yeah Yeah, so it can be a hard kind of weird nomadic lifestyle Um, I've been fortunate enough to stay at the same place for a while and so I'm I'm hoping to minimize the number of additional moves that I have to make from here on out so so yeah actually when you said you've been here that long part of me was like that's awesome like it's great that you've had that stability that you've had that like able to just kind of plop down and not plop in a bad way but you know put put some roots down and stay yeah. in, in place for a while that's awesome yeah be very lucky um yeah so where'd you uh, where'd you grow up before your kind of phd path with the whole astrophysics path
1: um <clears throat> so I, I grew up in the southwest of england yeah. and um did a physics degree um in oxford and then went on to nottingham cool um, yeah after that so moved around a bit around the country
0: so the southwest are you out out on the peninsula there uh, in exeter an, exeter, oh yeah, exeter, where the met office is now so, yeah okay yeah. cool yeah i like exeter a lot we spent uh, a week out there in october um at the university just visiting some people in the met office and um i liked how close the the beach was and you, know, you could get on a train and go to Exmouth, and the that whole seaside town yeah. is right there did you go to the to the beach, beach, Yeah, beach, no, you know? I mean yeah. Exeter's
1: great, situated for the for the for the coast and for the hills of Dartmoor as well. Um So yeah, it's a great location. Um again, the, the university is a nice big green campus university as well. It's it's a really nice place to be. Yeah, you still have
0: family out there. Still yes. folks, yeah, still yeah. got
1: family there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, what are they What are they up to if you don't mind? Like, what's the your your folks? Or uh, they, like, you um, they're retired now. <laughs> they're so retired, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just Just uh, being. Re- Retired out on the southwest. Exactly, yes. I think there's a pretty high percentage of retired folks on, that, on the peninsula, if I remember, right? You know, out there in the Yeah, I, I think you know, there are, yeah. It's a nice place
1: to go and settle down, I think, yeah. Is it the Florida? Is it like the U.S.? <laughs> <Florida? It's like laughs> Somewhat, you, I guess, yes, you, a little bit. <laughs> when you're done, you either, like,
0: go move to the southwest, or you can move to Spain or something, or, you know, you go feel somewhere warmer, um, go somewhere warmer as your skin gets thinner <laughs> with age. I'm going to ask you a silly question okay. that, um, that I... Uh, occasionally ask people so you know there's type one errors and type two errors Mm -hmm. right type one error is where you see a pattern that isn't there and a type two patterns where you miss patterns that are there so if you had to make a choice you've got to have one bias one direction or the other in your life would you rather be biased towards (laughs) making more type one errors or more type two errors
1: (laughs) um it's a silly question question. Uh, because you're thinking about
0: like that um the the difference between the two, and mm-hmm. like which you think you could cope with better. I, I
1: think <laughs> missing things which are there is probably more comfortable. I think for so. Me, yeah, yeah.
0: Missing things which, which oh, instead of constantly
1: constantly seeing, seeing things them. which aren't there. I, yeah,
0: that would, yeah, that would that would that would worry me. I guess we're not we're not necessarily talking about um, you know seeing things that aren't mm-hmm. there, and not like seeing visions or something. But I just mean <laughs> maybe scientifically, you know, seeing a pattern that is there or miss, uh, seeing a pattern that isn't there. Or, um, I've gotten myself all tied up. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so do you feel that way scientifically too? Do you think like you'd, um,
1: or would you rather? I'd, I'd rather miss a right conclusion rather than make a false conclusion.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So you'd rather not have a false conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you would be biased in the. Um, if I had to make a the, choice, if you had to make a choice, yeah, <laughs> in this ridiculous hypothetical scenario, which doesn't doesn't happen at all, um, yeah. So you would, <laughs> I've managed to get my head a <laughs> turned turned around. And okay, so you you would rather not make the mistake of finding patterns all over the place. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, well, that, that's interesting. Yeah, because I guess you know if you see a pattern that's not there, and you publish it, and you put it out there um, then the whole scientific machinery you know the peer review machinery will hopefully tell you okay well that's not that's not there that's not robust yes Um, and if that's all working like it should be then that's really encouraging yes uh, but um, yeah I I could see that right because you don't want to you don't want necessarily to have a reputation as "Oh, everything that this person puts out we keep discovering is not actually there yeah so from that kind of consistency standpoint that and, makes a lot of sense yeah i
1: mean yeah. and you also you know i don't think you want you know our, our science is um used to um motivate policymakers to think about um actions yeah. about whether they want to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions or not yeah yeah um and so when we are so policy relevant i think we have to be Especially careful about not drawing false conclusions, yeah, um, and particularly robust. Um, So I guess that's you know other fields which aren't so policy relevant, you know, which is more exploratory. Then you know maybe that there's something different to be said. But I think when we're from a side policy relevant. I think it's very yeah. important to, it's to maintain that robustness.
0: It's interesting that you you answered for all of the science, though. It felt like, as opposed to like you personally, which okay. I thought, it's I a very, very was, much a personal. View. <laughs> very much that, no, no, no. I didn't mean that you were imposing that view on everybody, <laughs> but I, I could tell that your your perspective seemed to be one of considering the whole scientific field as producing. Which I thought that was that I think mm-hmm. that's interesting, okay. right? Because it, I think that points to you do feel a certain level of responsibility for the whole scientific enterprise, you know, as an, as an entity, you're, you're concerned about that. And you're, uh, you you want that whole enterprise to produce, you know, good, robust science. Um, Yeah. No, that's, that's a good Mm -hmm. answer. Um, I think uh, other things that have kind of, well, we talked about writing a little bit, but what about writing proposals? That's a super different activity, right? How do you handle writing proposals? That's just a totally different monster.
1: It is. um, And, the success rate for proposals of you know are very low, and so it encourages you to only think about ideas which you think are fundable, which <laughs> it may or may not be the same research that you would like to do yourself. Yeah. Um, and that is that's a you know, slight tension which we don't always enjoy, I think. Um, but yeah, having to write very differently in a way that will motivate the research for a broader group that that's obviously something which we need to think about more generally anyway so i don't have a problem with that um but you know there's a you know a large push for our um research to be seen to having impact um and wider applicability which is great um but and we you know we should ensure that you know we are providing solutions to to Issues that, that our science raises, but we must not also miss the fact that a lot of our research has come from just the sort of blue skies, more open thinking um, type research as well. And if we lose that, I think that that's a big risk. That we, we must always have a certain amount of science going on which is more open ended, um, as well as the specific projects which you know are looking for you know specific looking at very specific problems with to generate solutions.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's, uh, you know, the the folks who kind of lay out the funding and lay out the, they have a big role in setting, you know, what scientists end up actually doing. So it's fair to say that some of that responsibility is on, on them to kind of, it's like a framework within which the kind of science that people want that would be good for, you know, beneficial for it. <laughs> humans mm-hmm. for society actually yeah. uh, to, to, to for that to happen and like you said it's got to be a nice mix of very targeted things and very uh, blue skies kind of open ended sort of science yeah, and I don't know what the right balance is i I wonder it almost feels like that recently and I, i'm I'm making two this is an overgeneralization, mm-hmm. i'll I'll frame it that way and, and totally admit that I, I guess I worry that things are tilting in the direction of in a very specific you know, oh well, we want you to produce a tangible benefit for the UK economy or the world economy or whatever country it is. You know, right now <laughs> we want yes. you to have like, an, yep. and that is at odds with the kind of open-ended blue sky science that we were talking about, where you you don't know where that science is going to go, you don't mm-hmm. even know if the blue sky <clears throat> science is going to work. Yep. Um, yeah, is that just is that just my own? I don't know if that's just my own personal perception bias or something or if that has been i don't know in the, both the us and the yeah UK, there's certainly been like a
1: shift a, towards more targeted specific projects to generate you know specific benefits yeah. um uh, and yeah the, and the, many of those projects have been highly su- successful and and that's great but <laughs> i mean i guess you know in the in the uk we have um the national research centres such as bass um and the oceanography centre and NCAST, the atmospheric science centre which i'm part of which do have a, a longer term remit to think about that we can do longer term research yeah, programs yeah. um to try and to think about the more blue skies aspect yeah um and so we're we're very lucky to have those centers which, which can take that viewpoint getting like um, the mix is tricky but but getting the mix is very tricky, yeah. i agree um and um if you're not part of one of those centers and you want to do some blue skies research, it's very difficult, and I think we need to encourage more of that where where we can yeah, try to turn some
0: knobs on that and get get the mixture right yeah, I guess what you need for that hopefully there's a back and forth dialogue you know between the scientists and the funding agencies mm-hmm. to like get get the balance that everybody's happy with yeah. that's iterative too
1: it, it is, and you know ultimately and our our science is funded by you know, general taxation and, yeah. and and so we we must be um you know providing benefit um for for all of that investment um as well yeah absolutely
0: oh you know that makes me think speaking of like the benefit to everyone that makes me think about um open access publishing and open access data and there's a pretty there's in my view there's a pretty good argument you could make that well because we're publicly funded for the most part that uh, we should be making all of our papers open access. We should be making kind of all of our data set open access, and maybe we should even make it easier somehow for uh, other folks to kind of participate in science and climate science.
1: Um,
0: I don't know. What do you th- What do you think? Do you have some thoughts on? Yeah, kind of open, I am mean, I'm, I'm very much and, of
1: the view that <clears throat> you know all of our data should be as open as possible, um, and I think there have been great steps in that direction yeah. over the last few years. Um, which is fantastic to see. You know, anyone can download, you know, a large number of the data sets that we use on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, you know, that that aspect is is, is fantastic yeah. to, to see.
0: And I guess the other side of that, Pete, Pete Davis and I were talking about this last week. That um, researchers, at the same time, the other side of that is, you know, researchers are often judged by their paper output and their their data output and things, and so. There's still there has to be some kind of system by which you know researchers can still get appropriate credit for oh well you you made this data set or you pulled this bit of insight out mm-hmm. of this particular data set so there's sometimes some protectiveness right researchers want to save their data set to give them kind of a first crack at it so they can produce some initial papers and I, I understand where that's coming from too I mean that's fair enough and I don't know what the right balance is between those those things mm-hmm. but you know right now the system we have is that researchers are that's one of the metrics is publications and so' we're, so people are naturally protective of their ability to mm-hmm. get new things out of the data and to
1: publish mm-hmm. so yeah we've certainly seen a drive towards publishing data sets yeah. now, which is great and they can be cited in the literature and so on and that that gives a certain amount of credit to the person who created it but yeah. there undoubtedly should be you know a an embargo period for someone who has done the experiments or collected the observations to do the research they want to do before making it available. I think, you know, we need to ensure that embargo is relatively short, but yeah. no, no, the researchers who've done that should, as you say, get first crack at, at, the, at doing the science they want to do. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I think the balance is, is reasonable at the moment, um, um, you know, yeah, there, there is an increasing drive towards open access, especially with some of the, you know, the old records we've got and so on. And I think that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you? Um, we were talking about grants a second ago, mm-hmm. and that the kind of low success rate. And uh, this is something that you know I'm I'm putting together a proposal now, so I'm mentally trying to get myself in the right framework for you know, spending a ton of time working on something. Yep. Fully anticipating it to not go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you handle uh, the kind of it's not a failure, but it can feel mm-hmm. like one. You know, you put all this work into something and it just doesn't get funded for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there are tons of other, you know, there's highly competitive these funding pots, right? There can be tons of good proposals going in. Sometimes yeah. there's just isn't isn't one of those. Yeah. Uh, and there can be a huge variety of reasons that don't even necessarily reflect on your proposal. It could just be the environment, the funding environment that your proposal went into. Um, so how do you strike that right balance for yourself you know that mental preparation for this probably is going to not go anywhere
1: (laughs) that's hard and it's hard when it's turned down you've (laughs) invested all this time and and mental effort but i think you know the way to think about it is an investment of time in that you know while writing that proposal you will have crystallized your own thoughts about a particular topic and identified certain directions that you think know needs to be gone gone into to to make progress in that particular problem, and so you know that that is not wasted i mean some of the time will have been wasted, but you know having that investment in crystallizing where, where you think yeah. things should be going is yeah. is is very very valuable to yeah. to have done because at the end of that you you will have
0: a very clear idea of what you want to do yes. you've spelled it out
1: yes and
0: I guess the i can kind of accept that right i guess it it could be harder if you kind of feel like you're your job prospects and everything hinge on whether or not this thing gets accepted or not, which is this grant application, you know, gets yes. accepted or not, which is, uh, that's, a much, that's a hard mental balance to strike because you um, you have to prepare yourself for the possibility that it's not going to go through even though kind of knowing that a, this particular grant application could be kind of make or break for you. you could get, It could send you in very different directions in your, yes. your whole life, so you almost have to decouple from it in a way you have to maybe that's like, hard you that's know. really hard because yeah. you, know,
1: you know there's an element of luck you yeah. know in the process about who's on the panel who's reviewed your proposal yeah. on that particular day um you know it, you know there, there, there is an element of of ch- you know chance which yeah. is slightly unsatisfactory <laughs> but we can't really get around it i don't yeah. think
0: no, no i i guess you know one everybody will have kind of different ways to to deal with that but i guess you almost have to um you have to yeah you have to de- det- detach yourself a little bit from it and try to not be so personally invested in it even though it is extremely personal even, even though it does determine a lot about your potential sure. you know, future so yeah. it's a it's like a high wire act for mm-hmm. your, and if, you
1: and know, if you know if if you you know continue to think it's really important then mm-hmm. you know then you need to keep pushing keep and going. you know eventually it will be successful
0: yeah keep putting it out there and it, mm-hmm. it can come to life in some form through some yes. avenue Yes yeah so
1: I'm, you know, I've certainly yeah. had that with one of my projects recently um, you know i i've, I've <clears throat> for a long time tried to advocate that we need to um, better understand past changes in weather and climate and one way of doing that is to ensure that all of the weather records that were taken a hundred years ago we have now have modern digital access to yeah um there are it may be surprising to know that you know we there are Millions of pages of weather observations, yeah. just from the UK, where which are sitting in the archives, which have never been scanned or digitised and uh, turned into and you know, turned into usable data. Yeah. This is the
0: weather rescue citizen science kind of project, It is yeah. yes. So it took a while to get. So yeah, I've, I've
1: um, certainly been trying to get funding for this type of activity for you know a few years. Okay. Yeah. um with, Without much success, but you know as a you know a chance conversation um meant we got you know a small seed funding through a public engagement grant nice. um to kick start the project um and it's been amazingly successful um uh, and uh, yeah and so we mm. you know continuing to talk about what you would like to do you know Hopefully, eventually, yeah. you, you you will manage to, to 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 get what what you want out of it. Yeah,
0: but, um, you have to find something, an idea, something that <coughs> you, something that you want to exist. You know, mm-hmm. something that I, I want this to happen you yes. know, a science activity or an outreach activity of some kind. Yes, and just grab onto it and mm. try to manually push it through, and yes. somehow, you, yeah. know, you, you know, it can feel a bit like pushing a boulder up a hill and then watching it roll back down again. The whole <laughs> S- Sisyphean kind of thing, but. Um, yeah, just I don't know. Keep at
1: it. No yeah. eventually you might get the ball to the top of the hill, and yeah. you know it'll go down the other side yeah, instead. So. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you know it, it, maybe that's not the best metaphor for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. and you know the particular aspect about the weather rescue project I'm particularly happy about is involving volunteers in in the activity. You know, teaching um, people about weather and climate science and the science, the process of doing science. Yeah, um, I think is very important. Um, to you know get people to, to question what they're looking at um, when they see you know whatever it is in this particular case some old weather measurements or um, there's other amazing citizen science projects around looking at um, pictures of historical storms um, and or you know there's any number of projects any number of different fields you know seeing animals and so on yeah. categorizing them it gets people thinking about um, Know, what they're seeing and processing and uncertainty and yeah. all of these important aspects that, that we have to, that we think about on a daily basis, but it's important to get other people thinking about these types of issues, um, I think but behind the scenes.
0: Is there like um an opportunity for some of the some of the problems you just kinda mentioned made me think, in addition to having people do it, any opportunities for kind of machine learning type approaches for you know uh, analyzing so this all
1: There's certainly, yeah, I think um there are certain tasks which i think you know human eyes and human brain are still uniquely suited to solving yeah. you know reading handwriting you <laughs> know in tabular form for example i think is one at the <laughs> moment um where it's very hard to to machine to do that mm. um not impossible i think but it, it, yeah. it's 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 pretty challenging Spotting patterns in in data is often easier for for humans, it seems, than than machines. You know, I think the the technology of of handwriting recognition and machine learning and all these other things which are coming online, you know, are going a long way to to narrowing those gaps and and um to, and I think there'll be more progress in the near future. And so I think you know there may be times where, um yeah, machine learning can sort of do a lot of this. Um, I, I don't know how far they'll go, and whether it'll completely take over from the all the tasks that humans can do at the moment about these types of activity. Yeah. But I you know, hope we'll not,
0: because uh, we need jobs and stuff. <laughs> True, <laughs> we, need, <Yeah. laughs> we need something to do; otherwise, we'll just sit around and make art for each other. And that's, <laughs> that's all we'll be able to. <laughs> we'll make art mm. for each other, and uh, we won't use the rainbow color bar and when, <laughs> we, when we make that art for each other. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Very important, you know. I have I have gotten away from that. I've gotten away from the the rainbow color bar, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I I like that you. I appreciate that you, you know, have such a push for like you know trying to push for color vision friendly kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know color maps and color bars. Because I'm I'm a bit color blind myself actually. Okay. Yep, uh, and so it's a fairly common occurrence for me to look at a plot at a conference and to just not be able to. I have okay color vision. It's not like terrible, but blues and purples are really similar to okay. my eye for some mm-hmm. reason. Um, so uh, often, there's a plot with you know four hundred different colors or something, and my eyes just can't quite like. wow, mm-hmm. I don't know. I I just need some at that point. I need somebody to point at the thing and tell me what I'm supposed to get from sure. it. as a part, sure. you know, So that. So yeah, it's um, yeah. It's so uh, yeah, a a us has right? to
1: certainly been pushing the idea that we we need to think slightly harder when we're making graphics about the design of the graphics, the colour scale is one aspect um but there's many other aspects to think about as well and to to try and ensure that there is they're you know giving the represented data efficiently effectively, and you know without any distortion um and and so making conscious decisions about how to represent the data is very important to to not necessarily just accept the defaults that your plotting software happens to give you. Yeah. Um, for example, um and I mean colour is an important part of that and the rainbow colour car is, you know, one example where it's very prevalent because it's the automatic setting for 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 many pieces of software. You know, and the rainbow colour scar, as you said, is is particularly bad for those who are colorblind, But it also, perhaps more importantly, can um introduce false perceptual boundaries into your data when no boundary actually exists yeah, especially around, yeah. the, around yellow and transition between yellow and green can yeah. be very very sharp and appear like there's a sharp boundary when in fact there isn't any
0: yeah
1: um, and so you know there's been a lot of work in the sort site of sci- the color science community to create um, color scales which are which are better suited for representing continuous data for example to ensure that we see the features that are there and not features that aren't. And so getting people to think about these, these topics and use color scales and other plotting tools, which allow them to represent the data efficiently and effectively. And it it, is really important that we do that on a day to day basis.
0: There's this a viridus one that I almost Mm -hmm. liked. I almost like, I don't don't Mm -hmm. quite like it. Um, but, uh, so I guess when I, first, I've seen it and I have played around with it a little bit and, uh, Something just wasn't quite clicking for me with it for some reason. But uh, then a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, uh, I've got a, a friend who uh, he's in uh, solar physics and him and I often exchange uh, nerdy messages yes. about colored scales, and <laughs> color bars and uh, you know, plots and things like that. And uh, so he showed me this Cividis one. I don't know if you have you seen that one. I haven't seen that one. So it's been? Cividis. It's more like... Um, it's it's more like a single kind of color gradient okay you know where viridis has a few of them in there mm-hmm. and uh civitas is supposed to be a bit better for um you know color deficient vision and something about it maybe that jumped out at me okay. and I okay that works for me like okay. that's awesome. Great. so you know yeah, they, yeah. so i think um there's still an element of choice it's not like mm-hmm. you have to go you know one particular direction that yeah. everybody else is going but uh maybe just like you, I think you're encouraging people to be critical about their choice of colour bars and not just accept the kind of default one. I guess the default ones are getting a bit better in some...
1: They are improving, definitely. Push, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And, and um, I mean, the push has been going for a while, but the defaults are certainly changing, which is great. And I think, I mean, w- what you say about the colour scales that you prefer is that there's no... There's not necessarily right answers yeah. about what scales to use, but there's probably wrong answers. <laughs> um, uh, and trying to, you know, reduce the number of wrong answers yeah um in favor of more right answers i think is the way to go yeah
0: <laughs> um yeah good i was just looking at my list here i think i think we t- talked about a lot yeah we talked about a lot of things i think we pretty much kind of covered the stuff on on my list here except um the uh i don't know you probably talked about it a bunch the whole spiral thing yeah you, know, you probably have said <laughs> said a ton about this already but like i thought um so you didn't you weren't informed of that beforehand right the whole like uh spiral thing being used in the Olympic you know somebody just downloaded that and made an, an a montage for the Olympics and
1: then um, there so, it was so
0: could, uh, yeah is that how you were you watching at the time or did I, you I, I
1: was watching yeah' so, uh, weird so uh, yeah I'd made this graphic back in May before the Olympics and it gone a bit viral on Twitter yeah um which is which was great um and then yeah I was um <laughs> I'd actually. Um, uh, it was a Friday night. I'd, I'd been very <laughs> exciting. I'd gone to um, uh, IKEA yeah. and bought some flat pack furniture and nice. was sitting at home putting together the flat pack furniture while watching the Olympic the opening ceremony. Olympics are
0: kind of on in the background. Yeah. You're, you're trying to put, you know,
1: put some shelves together. You're, you're, uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, I was trying to think of a name of an IKEA thing, the tables and stuff, the, the horfler or something, you know, like that. But yeah,
1: yeah so you're putting. Yeah, putting I was there putting Olympics shelves together, and then you know, there was the. The, the bit was on the ceremony about climate change, so I sort of paid a m- bit minute. more closer attention. Yeah, um, uh, and then suddenly this graphic appeared on the screen representing <laughs> the rise in temperatures, and hang on a minute. and it was hang- yeah, it was very much hang on a minute. That's <laughs> <semi-dead>. that's, that's <laughs> essentially. I mean, it was, you know, they had redrawn it themselves, oh, okay, okay. Um, it wasn't, it was, it. there wasn't actually you know, the same graphic that I produced, but okay. they'd redrawn it in the same style and the same yeah. way. This polar coordinate um, thing where it spirals out. Exactly. No, yeah. um, and that was quite a shock, because yeah. I hadn't been told about it beforehand. You know, I, you know the, the graphics that I produced are all open access, and anyone yeah. can download them, and that's great. Um, um, but no, so they hadn't...
0: Yeah, it's kind of a neat... When you say it's open me. access, I mean, that's kind of a neat success story i guess if you want to say it that way for yeah if you make stuff open access as long as you can as long as that's fine for you career-wise and stuff then mm. it might get used in nice nice ways i mean it might get used in in ways that you you don't expect that's a positive example i imagine there might be negative examples too potentially i don't know if yeah. I, yeah. I mean the, the, any negative the,
1: the, the, the so. there was one negative example yeah. when um it was quite early on after i'd started the blog and i put on a graphic i've been working on just a, an idea essentially, you know, very informal um about um comparing our observations of global temperature with some simulations of, of what we're going on. And uh, um uh, the graphic was talking about a particular aspect of how you do that comparison can make quite a big difference to the, your interpretation. And I put that on the blog and uh, um and then they got used by a national newspaper um a few days later. To try and cast doubt on um, the fact that what we were seeing in the observations was was not um, comparable with what our simulations were telling us right and this caused quite a quite a stir in in, in the media and so on, and so that was an example yeah. where they had taken something from the blog without permission without asking um, uh, and used it and misinterpreted right um, what was represented that 's
0: the thing because it 's not like.
1: You weren't making a first-order, you know,
0: statement about everything's completely wrong and we have to change. You know, this is a paradigm mm-hmm. shift in the way that we think about climate. It was more like, oh, let's make. A, there's a tiny adjustment the, we need to make right the, here. There's,
1: there's, is, a, there's, a, there's a subtle issue something. about how you do that comparison, yeah. which you need to ensure that you're comparing apples with apples rather yeah. than apples and avoccs. Um, uh, to, to you know, and that was the point I was trying to make. Yeah. But that could easily, as it turned mm-hmm. out be misrepresented was and, this, and misused.
0: There was this great uh, Economist article a few years ago where um, the, uh, the author kind of pointed out, he said, well, whenever you read an article about climate science, uh, ask yourself, do they want me to think about climate science as a jigsaw puzzle that is mostly complete, but there are some missing bits here and there, or do they want me to think about climate science as a house of cards? And... Uh, that's been such a useful conceptual tool for me Mm -hmm. to like you know read a news article and ask that question you know are they trying to make the statement that aha we found we've pulled out this one card from the bottom and now the whole house of cards has collapsed isn't that a relief we don't have to worry about climate (laughs) anymore versus uh the picture that uh i'm pretty confident in saying that the the vast majority of scientists and climate scientists think of climate as the jigsaw puzzle picture. We've got a good first order understanding. We know, you know, what the overall jigsaw puzzle looks like. Mm-hmm. No, we don't have all the pieces in place and there are mm-hmm. some bits that maybe haven't been put in exactly the right place and we'll figure that out. But those are not first order questions, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we know the basic physics and that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. You put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you get more energy down here at the surface and it's going to go somewhere. Yeah, it's basic <laughs> physics, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, uh, really simple physics. You can't mm-hmm. get rid of it. it that energy is going to go mm-hmm. somewhere. And it looks like a lot of it is going into the oceans. Mm. Um, so I think in that case that you just mentioned, the <coughs> negative case, and mm-hmm. you see it in lots of articles, that author that misinterpreted your data, uh, your, your blog post, was trying to sell the idea that... Oh well, climate science is a house of cards, and here I've found just the, the single card I can pull out to to
1: collapse. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yes, um, I, I've also heard a similar analogy about the the jigsaw puzzle, as to um, seeing you know the, the the state of our science as a picture. You know, initially we started off with perhaps you know a sketch drawing, um, oh, yeah, and we've slowly graduated into sort of maybe a painting and maybe a Polaroid photograph, <laughs> and slowly you know we're getting more and more crispness and you know more towards a digital Mm. many megapixel type image of of what we're trying to see Um, and you know that's I think the process that the way I see it is that you know we started with a a sketch of our understanding of how the physics of the atmosphere worked Mm. um, you know back in the 1800s um, and through time we've been gradually refining that adding more detail um, and slowly that picture is getting crisper and crisper and crisper yeah um, uh, and we're, but we're very confident about what's in the picture. Yeah, you know, we yeah. can see that we've seen that for a long time. We're just improving the representation or understanding of what we're at, precisely we're seeing.
0: Yeah, in the US anyway, you can use this great phrase like, "Look, it's Civil War era science. It's from the." <laughs> it's from the yeah, I guess it is. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what was yeah. happening here around the eighteen, eighteen sixties, eighteen hundreds? So you, you can use the same. Yeah. Um, is that Victorian or is it, is uh, it Victorian? Yeah, Victorian, yeah. yeah. So, this yeah. is Victorian era science. It, and it very <laughs> like much you know, is, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's
1: when John Tyndall <laughs> did his experiments in London to demonstrate what became known as the greenhouse effect. That was 1860s.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's the, we've known that basic picture since then and that hasn't changed and yeah. it's not going to change. No, you know, it's fundamental you know, physics and chemistry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not suddenly going to discover like, oh, actually, all the energy is just going to vaporize and you know, get transported off and form of cosmic rays or some some bizarre thing like that. No, I think no. <laughs> that this, it's an important
1: aspect of how we communicate our science actually, which isn't necessarily used as much as it might be. Is that the fact that we have understood this for the basics of this for 150 years. Yeah. We have, you know, the first um, evidence that global temperatures were increasing. Um, that was 80 years ago in 1938, um, uh, and even then, it was suggested that some of that increase was due to carbon dioxide. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you know, gradually we will be refining that picture, but you know it's not some modern environmental crusade. No, um, it is very much about fundamental physics and chemistry, which we've been you know working on for 150 years, if not 200 years.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's uh, uh, there's a there's a scientist out at uh, Colorado State, Scott Denning, who um, he likes to say that climate change is simple, serious, and solvable, and the simple part is. It's Civil War era science, and when you add heat to something, it warms up. (laughs) and It changes state in some way. He likes to use the analogy of, you know, put a kettle on, right? You put a kettle on the stove in the U.S., or here you just, you've got an electric kettle, and you just press the button, and then you add energy to the kettle, and something happens to it, and it boils, and the temperature raises, and the phase changes, and it goes somewhere. Uh, Yeah, so you're right that you don't see that as much. I'm not totally sure why, but there is like a really basic old... Well, super well established core of, of physics here, mm-hmm. of science, um, and I guess a lot of scientists we get so interested in in those small uncertainties in fitting our p- piece of the jigsaw puzzle into yes. the larger picture yes. that that ends up being something that we we talk about, which is a good thing to do, and it's an honest thing to do as well, because you don't want to pretend like you have a hundred percent complete understanding of the whole picture, but um, it's almost like that that gets amplified sometimes like when that climate scientist or a scientist in general is talking about the uh, small relatively small uncertainty associated with their project or idea that they're interested in uh, that's that that can get picked up on uh, potentially by folks who want to frame climate scientists the more house of cards kind of style thing so yeah keeping that keeping that house of cards versus jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. contrast is really useful in my in my mind um, yeah well I know um, I think we pretty much got through everything. Great. Is there anything else you want to talk about?
1: Um, yeah. Not that I Are think of, no. Feeling um, I'm feeling good, yeah. I mean, yeah. If, you know, I if, if people want to get involved with Weather Rescue and help us rescue more millions more observations that were taken over a century ago and fill in some of those gaps that we have in our um, understanding of past weather, then weatherrescue.org is the place to go. Nice.
0: Okay, well, th- uh, thanks, Ed. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, no, Great. Uh, th-
1: yeah, thanks, for, thanks for doing no that. No
0: worries. Um, I thought that went really well.
1: Anyway, I thought it was yeah, really interesting. Good chats. Ah. Wide-ranging topics.
0: Yeah. There you have it, Ed Hawkins, Professor of Climate Science at the University of Reading. Thanks really, thanks a lot to Ed uh, for joining me for this chat. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate it with everyone. Everyone that I talk to, they're really busy people, they're really active people, and I... Their time means a lot to me, and uh, so thanks to all my guests for taking time aside to uh, sit and talk with me. We mentioned this end of the rainbow thing. So if you look up um, Ed Hawkins, the end of the rainbow, you'll find entries from the climate lab book and also from uh, other websites. There's an end rainbow hashtag on Twitter. What that's about. So Ed Hawkins uh, wants to get rid of the rainbow color bar. Because it's perceptually really bad news. The yellow color stands out. Your eye picks it out preferentially over the other colors. So check that out online. Um, I've been trying to get away from the rainbow color bar. (laughs) You know, it's a good thing to do if you plot quantities. Uh, Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for downloading, listening. See you uh, in a couple weeks. Not literally. Bye.